Welcome to To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast. Each week, join Eric Trexler and Rachel Lyon to explore the latest in global cybersecurity news, trending topics, and industry transformation initiatives impacting governments, enterprises, and our way of life. Now, let's get to the point. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of To The Point Podcast. I'm Rachel Lyon. Here, joined yet again with my co-host, Eric Trexler. Eric. Rachel, you say that like it's just too much for you. I know. Well, good it's late in the day, but no, it's good. Two in one day. Two recordings in one day. You just can't beat this. I mean. And it's a great day for the podcast. It Who is. do we have? Oh, I'm so excited. Tell okay. our listeners. All right, you guys, you ready? We have Nick Espinosa. He is the chief security fanatic at Security Fanatics, and he knows all the things, and he's talked to all the people, and I can't wait for him to share the insights of of everything he knows. Welcome to the podcast, Nick. Thanks for having me. I'm I'm looking forward to this. Nick, every time I hear the word fanatic, I think of the Philly fanatic from my childhood. <laughs> well, I'm I'm a little less fluffy around the edges. <laughs> and you're not I think. green. Just, you know, uh, you, I, I think he had hat. like green feathers, or I just remember it was like a green bird-like thing. Yeah, it's like a green honking muffet muppet-looking. Yeah, thing. maybe I'm yeah. thinking of Big Bird and the <laughs> Philly fanatic, and I'm kind of intermingling them, but. We can look it I up, think Rachel. Pretty close. We'll link to it in the notes. But anyway, Chief, <laughs> Chief Fanatic, let's talk, Rachel. Yes. Well, you know, Nick, you. I, that's what I was telling uh, before we got on this uh, the podcast. You were telling us. I mean, you you've really been hustling and talking to a lot of folks. I mean, particularly on the Ukraine issue, and been really impressed with the folks that you've been able to speak to, including you know members of Ukraine Parliament. And I would I would just love for you to kind of share with your listeners, you know, what you've been working on these last couple of weeks, and and then we can kind of dive into the conversation of of what you've been discovering. Yeah, yeah. Well, like I said, thanks, thanks for having me. I, I really appreciate being here. And uh, yeah, I've spent, well, we've been pretty much running in emergency mode with the Ukraine situation right now for obvious reasons, uh, just given what we do. But I've had the honor of talking to several members of the Ukrainian government, uh, two of which decided to sit down or chose to sit down and, and be interviewed by me for my radio show. And I was just deeply grateful for that. But I've spoken to members of parliament. Uh, my last interview was with the secretary uh, for the Committee on Foreign Affairs. She's also the deputy head of the NATO delegation mm -hmm. for Ukraine, as well as a member of parliament. And I've also spoken to other leaders, um, you know, in the defense ministry and others just back and forth on various messaging. And, and the, it's been a very tough week, only in the sense that I know that some of the people that I've spoken to are probably no longer mm -hmm. with us. And that has been a very, very difficult thing to to grasp because there's a lot of people that were very friendly and receptive to these kinds of things. And then they've simply stopped right. and, and stopped communicating and responding. Some have responded back. Others have not. And obviously, we fear right. the worst. Well, let's hope it's, it's just been a very tough issue, week. Right. They, they just can't get the signal yes. out or something. Yeah. Well, and well, and here's the thing, though. It, it, what's interesting is one of the things that a lot of people are not realizing is that obviously we're fighting a social media right. war. And the reason why we are able to see all of these images from literally the millions of citizen journalists that are Ukrainians because they've got a mobile phone and the ability to record and upload is because by all intelligence accounts, the Russians have not actually been hitting the Internet infrastructure directly uh, in Ukraine. And the belief is that they actually need to use it right. themselves for their military 
authoritarian coordination, the double-edged sword being the Ukrainians get to use right. it too. So I think that's why we've we've had such good communication, but we've had plenty of interviews or communications be delayed for hours or days. Uh, we, we set up appointments with these people to, to have interviews, and then they would not show up only to have hours later say, I had to move to a bomb right. shelter or we had to move positions. You know, these, these are people that are actively under threat. And so, you know, it's, it's taken sometimes all hours of the night or the morning or whenever just to get these, you know, obviously these various people, um, you know, in front of a camera or just to, to be recorded. So <clears throat> I think it's really important work, yes. but you know, like I said, it's heartbreaking. It really as well. So when, when they talk to you, what, like, what's the, what are what are you talking about? What's, what's the message that's coming out? Yeah, so so part of me wants to because I have a nationally syndicated radio show as well as a good chunk of followers on you know LinkedIn and Facebook and Twitter and all of that. Part of part of it is I just want to get right. the word out. I want them to be able to say what they are seeing on the ground. I mean, the first question I ask all of them is, "How are you? Like, are you safe? Right. Are your loved ones safe?" what's going on. And I want to understand essentially what they are seeing. What's the real time news? So as I'm interviewing them, I'm kind of time stamping it saying, okay, it's, you know, X time in Kiev on this date, just so we understand for, for future reference, you know, what they were seeing on the ground. But a lot of them want to talk about and press home what has been a consistent message from Ukraine is that the Ukrainian government, um, especially in the last week or so, they've not actually been asking for troops. They've not been asking for boots on the ground. Uh, not, not that they'd say no to, let's Say you know a, a marine division from the United right. States showing up and helping, but what they're asking for essentially is no fly zones. They are looking basically to to you know reestablish essentially that they believe from from what I've heard, especially from my last interview from a few days ago, is that they can take the Russians on the ground. That that they're the Russians are slow. They're ill-equipped. A lot of them, from by all reports, not just in Ukraine but outside of Ukraine, uh, didn't even realize they were going to be part of an invasion. They thought they were going to be part of a training exercise or didn't understand this. And so the Ukrainians have been very well equipped and they're motivated, and that has been uh, a huge benefit to them. But the constant bombardments have been the problem that they have been seeing. And so every interview and and member of um, member of parliament I've talked to has consistently had that message wow. for me. Even if I don't interview, please ask the American public to convince your, your members of Congress to vote for a no-fly zone over Ukraine. And now we just heard that NATO is going to be supplying actual aircraft um, to Ukraine so that the Ukrainians can fly it to hopefully establish air supremacy over their, over their country. Right, right. So They're talking about are. it right now, MiG-29s, which right. the Ukrainians can theoretically fly, assuming they have roads or right. airstrips and fuel and everything they need. Right, right. Well, and that's and that's the key. I mean, are they going to take off from Poland? Because apparently these planes will be coming from Poland um, or through right. Poland, I should say. Or or do they have to establish airfields, uh, you know, in and around Ukraine? Now, Western Ukraine is not really under heavily attack. A lot of people don't realize that Ukraine is roughly the size of Texas with the population of California. And so while 150 to 200,000 Russian troops seems like a massive number, and it is, it's not nearly enough to take the entire right. country or become an occupant. Right. force. And so what we are looking at, assuming that Kiev and other major cities like Kharkiv and some others fall, is a continued well-armed insurgency against Russia until it's so untenable for the Russians to stay. Right. And so we're going to see what happens. Yeah, you it's know, it's funny. My 14-year-old is asking me, he was asking me last night, um, you know, how does this end? Right. And there's no great answer for a 14-year-old, but I, and, and I always like to look at things from every angle I can, I can conceive of and, and get as much sourcing material as I can to think through the problem. 
but there's no good answer here. Like it, it I, I don't see how it ends well for Russia at a minimum, but probably anybody. It's it's a horrible situation. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I was inter- I was interviewing a man named Dale Buckner. He's the founder and CEO of a private security force called Global Guardian. They have actually assets in Ukraine that are extracting their clients from an active war zone. This guy spent two, three decades in military special operations, intelligence, and all of that. And to hear him talk about it, and I think he had some really good points, is that look at the world and any insurgency you know, of a native population against a, a foreign invader, and it never ends well. Yeah. It, it, it gets it, you know, protracted. Con- members of Congress right now are being told to expect 10 to 20 years of this you know, if the Russians establish a foothold and are not repelled initially. Uh, so there is no easy answer beyond just absolute bloodshed uh, you know, for, for decades to come. And, and if that is the case, then at some point, somebody has to throw in the towel and it's not looking like it's going to be the Ukrainians, meaning Russia is going to have to do that or else NATO has to intervene militarily in some way, shape or form. And NATO seems very dead set against that. And so people are looking to see, is there a way to have Vladimir Putin save face while exiting the rest of Ukraine? Do we give him Crimea, Donbass, you know, those those regions as well that claim some kind of Russian heritage or status while essentially leaving the rest of Ukraine intact while we allow them to join NATO or promise not to join NATO, but heavily arm them with military presence. I mean, there are balances to be made, but it doesn't seem right now from everything that I've read and understand that the Russians are going to be slowing down anytime soon here. No, but it's great to have that perspective though, from the, the ground, because it's, you know, we were talking a little bit about misinformation before and, you know, you just don't know what you're seeing on social media. Is it a video from like 15 years ago where, you know, so to have that perspective and, you know, that uh, interview you did with Inna, um, last week was, was just so powerful. I mean, cause you do, you, you just, you, it, it just sounds so devastating. And, you know, when you hear it from the first person like that, it just breaks your heart that people have to go through this. Yeah. And she yeah, was and where days. she was in Ukraine at the time. She's in, she was in Kiev. And the, the, when I got to interview her, it was Monday morning here in the United States, Monday afternoon in, in Kiev. Monday the, and we had the what? Monday the first. I'm sorry. Monday the first. Of Monday, March? yeah. Mon- Monday, yeah. Monday the first of March. Okay. Uh, basically, a week, a week from from today, a week ago from today, as we were recording this, um, and it was very difficult. We spent a lot of time communicating back and forth over the weekend. We'd set up times. She wouldn't show up. And then she'd apologize saying, hey, I'm so sorry, you know, I had to move. I mean, you have nothing to apologize for, you know, to me, I totally understand. I'm sitting here comfortably in Chicago, you know, but, but yeah, I mean, it's getting those perspectives is one of the reasons why I'm, I'm reaching out to all of these people. You know, I just, I want, I want them to, to be able to have their voices heard. And I think it's just important and it's actual news from, from the front. It's not a report or, you know, to your point, Rachel, a, a video from 15 yeah. years ago that that is pro one side or the other. It's just this person on the ground, part of this government, and, and it's just accurate, you know, to that yeah, point. And we'll link to that uh, interview in, in the show notes just so folks know, because it was really powerful, that discussion, for sure. So, Nick, I, I have yeah, a question yeah, was- for you. Um, you know, as, as you were, you know, reflecting on the situation a couple of days in, we really did not see a tremendous amount of cyber activity mm. leading up to the event. It just went so quickly. It was like they almost overran cyber, minus some DDoS and some some wipers that, that were detected. Did that surprise you? So... 
from what we understand and what we know prior to the invasion, and Inna spoke about this, as did uh, my last interview with their member, another member of parliament, her name is Solomia. Uh, both of them had mentioned, well, you know, leading up to this, they did see financial institutions hit. Mm -hmm. They did see cyber attacks strategically designed essentially to undermine the confidence that the Ukrainian public had in their government. And so, I, I, while we're not seeing a total devastation, let's say, of the infrastructure, and again, if the Russians need to use the infrastructure of Ukraine, uh, you know, to to essentially help with their communication, then they're not going to knock it out. Right. But what they have been doing, and they have been doing this actually through the the war, actually with boots on the ground, is run a massive disinformation campaign against the Ukrainian people. One of the most recent things being is that President Zelensky basically had secretly fled with his family. I think it was to Poland or another border nation in an attempt to demoralize. So like Ukrainian soldiers give up. Your leader has given up, you know, and Zelensky has had to put out messages saying, no, I'm here. I'm, I'm not moving. You know, we're, you know, I'm in this for the long haul. So I think these things are, are there and they're prevalent. Um, and I think the reason why we didn't see uh, you know, it's just an unbelievable knocking out of their infrastructure, which we know, thanks to 2014, that, you know, the Russians have had the ability right. to do. Um, I think it's one, because they needed the Internet. But two, I think the Russians overestimated. Yeah. And I, th I think by virtue of that, when they walked into Crimea, they were able to hit that nuclear power plant as well, knock it out in 2014. Ukraine was a much different place. And since then, they have been arming, they have been improving their military, they have been getting training for special operations mm -hmm. and forces, and all this kind of stuff, understanding that on their border, they have somebody that's more than happy to take their right. land, if given a chance, and here we are. And so I think that's essentially part of that equation as well. So it would stand to reason then that that their internet is probably significantly more hardened than right. it was in 2014. And you would hope the world's internet is more hardened than it was in 2014, <laughs> you know, because we are always improving, you know, in our cyber defensive capabilities. You're always innovating new ways to approach threat. Force point is no different in that vein. I mean, you're not selling the same firewall and the same system with the same algorithms you did in 2014. Right. And so by virtue of that, I think I think that's that's part of the answer here. Um, but I think it's a combination of all those things, to be perfectly honest. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I, I can't speak to the Ukraine, but what I will say is, I mean, we're spending more money on cybersecurity and we're, and we're losing more IP. We're losing, you know, we're losing more money through things like ransomware and the like and, and, and espionage. We're mm -hmm. losing intellectual property at a greater rate than we were in 14. So mm -hmm. I, I don't know if Ukraine's figured out the secret sauce, but it doesn't appear the rest of the no. world has. Like it's really still. No, no. And I mean, and. Go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. No, go, ahead. go ahead. Okay. I was going to say that what the world has is a recognition of cyber threat, but, but a standard complacency that they've always right. had. And that, that I think gets everybody into trouble. And you can look at our own government in the United States. I, you know, I'm actually have an article that's in the process of being published on that <laughs> as well, where, you know, in 2021, the inspectors general for the eight major federal agencies came back and said, we are a complete and utter hot mess. Yeah. You know, the State Department can't account for something like 60 percent of all logins to their secret systems. You know, I think it was Homeland Security that wasn't up to date in patching. I think um, her housing and urban development, uh, you know, couldn't understand where their assets were. I mean, these are these are 
cybersecurity 101. And so while we have new and innovative products, when you have, an let's say, an old guard or an antiquated thinking of, well, I've been using this brand for the last 10 years, so I just renew the licensing, right. well, odds are you might be innovated around. Right. And so while the Ukrainians understand that, they've had a concerted effort by virtue of an actual military threat on their border for eight mm-hmm. years prior to this to say, yeah, we have to step up the game because we might not exist anymore. And that is really good motivation. I think that is one side. And the other side is the Russians are looking at the internet that the Ukrainians have and say, yeah, we need to use that one to to run our disinformation campaigns to attempt to demoralize the country, but also to coordinate our own actions. And obviously the Russians are coming with their own intelligence, their own radios, their own satellite. But why not use what the enemy has, especially if it's free and open and you can encrypt communication very easily across the Internet. So it would make sense for them to use it as well. Right. Eric's taking it in. He's taking it in. Um, I, I, no, that's exactly what I'm doing. I mean, there's so mm. many facets to this campaign. We're learning. Oh, yeah. We're, we're learning so much in, in the actions, the mistakes and everything. Right. But right Nick brings up a yes. great point. If you take the Internet down, guess what you don't have to access to? The Internet. How do you right. run a disinformation campaign, which I would argue the Russians are probably one of, if not the best in the world at, how do you run one if you don't Fantastic. have if you don't right. have comlinks, right? And and, yeah. and how do you make that yeah, how do you make that cost benefit trade off? That's a that's a question that's running through my mind, Rachel. Mm-hmm. Like, is it better to be able to create disinformation in the Ukrainian people's minds? Will they have access to it, or do we take the network down and prevent things like electricity? And you know, do, what do, what do we do? How do we do it? Right. Right. So I, I, I would say this, that when you're looking at warfare, uh, the, one of the best things that you can do, and this is in the history of warfare, is prior to your attack, attempt to make your enemy as deaf and blind as possible. Mm-hmm. And so if you're looking back at Ukraine in 2014, when they hit the, the nuclear power plant, they knocked out power roughly to 200,000 individuals or residents right. you know, of that region. But they also ran a denial of service attack on the communication infrastructure. And so nobody could pick up a phone and actually call the power company or the power plant or whoever they had to call to say, hey, my power is out. They made them deaf and blind. And a lot of intelligence agencies believe that was a dry run for potential attacks. What we're not seeing, though, is that. We're not seeing that reported here. And so the question is why? Why wouldn't they do that when they have the capability? Have the Ukrainians hardened themselves that well, uh, you know, around that infrastructure that the Russians simply couldn't get in? Or do the Russians actually need this? And, and the, the, the answer is, I think the Russians actually need this. And they're making the calculation that their need of the Internet plus their need for a disinformation campaign outweighs what the Ukrainians will use it for. And I think, quite frankly, that was a gross, uh, you know, estimation. That was a, that, they underestimated the capability of, of Ukraine. I think they also underestimated the galvanization yes. that we have seen globally of countries, not even in NATO. I mean, South Korea and Japan are leveling sanctions. Australia, South Africa, you know, are, it's, it's global. I mean, the FIFA, the, fo- the soccer federation said you can't play in the World Cup anymore. It's death by a thousand, you know, cuts to be a pariah right. here. And and so I think that's a problem. But to the original point, you're looking at the Internet as this indispensable entity that allows for communication both ways. And so, as I mentioned earlier, it's a double edged sword. They recognize the Ukrainians can use it, but I think they need it. And I think that's a that's a really good observation by our intel. I'm interested to see what happens. I mean, at this point, we're seeing on the northeastern, well, the eastern side of the country, 
they're bombing the hell out of the towns and cities, right? So you're going to hit power. Yes. They hit the the TV tower in Kiev the other the other uh, about a week ago, maybe four or yes. five days ago. So they're starting to hit that infrastructure from a kinetic perspective, whether intentional or not. It does appear there's some intention mm -hmm. there. You know, they 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 took over Chernobyl. They took over the another uh, nuclear power plant. Mm -hmm. So and set it on fire. Well, yeah, there, there was a little bit <laughs> yeah. of that. It it'll be interesting to see over time how their calculus changes, right? right. How, how they analyze, right. what do we do? What do we control? You know, as, as uh, communications and power, water, sewer, the critical infrastructure that, that people count on for their daily lives starts to get challenged. So we'll see what happens. Right. Right. Well, and, and in anything, combat is never the same and it always right. changes. Meaning you have shifting boundaries, you have shifting borders in a combat zone, you know, as you are approaching or retreating, depending on the situation. And so when you're looking at this, and that's one of the reasons why the Ukrainians are so desperate for a no-fly zone, is because uh, the Russians appear to be indiscriminately bombing and, so and attempting to soften up targets to allow their troops a much easier time right. on the ground. Right. That's why they're so desperate for this. And so we will see, to your point, you know, and did they hit that intentionally? I mean, that was the same strike that also hit a Holocaust memorial. Not that I'm sure the Russians care about that. But the point being is that they they seem to be hitting this. And we've seen I've literally seen the, the pictures being reported of, you know, like a children's hospital was hit. Mm -hmm. You know, a daycare was hit. These are not typical targets, obviously, for any war. And it's kind of abhorrent that, you know, this is where children would be. Uh, but it doesn't seem like the Russians are, are being that accurate. Beyond the point where, beyond the point of, if we can soften it up, it's going to be making it easier to right. go in. And maybe that's a calculation on demoralization right. as well. You know, I mean, I we can't understand a hundred percent what's in their minds because we're not running their their war for them. But as we're looking at this, I mean, I think to your point, there's going to be calculations that just simply have to be made in that, and and it's going to change the landscape. And maybe next week or two days from now, they decide uh, to knock out Ukraine's internet. We're already getting reports that they are looking at cutting off the Russian internet from the rest of the world due to the relentless cyber attacks that we've seen, you know, hacker collectives and anybody else that wants to get in this fight start launching against them. And so the estimate right now is on roughly March 11th, they may actually cut themselves off from the internet. I can refuse to do it. Um, and we've seen a lot of spectacular hits <clears throat> against Russian infrastructure, including a hacker collective known as Network Brigade 65, claiming to have knocked out Russian spy satellites, something they probably weren't you know, expecting. Anonymous claimed to have hit Russian TV, you know, changing the programming to the Ukrainian national anthem. A number of times. You know, all those kinds of things. Yes. So, so I think they're realizing just how vast their own infrastructure is, how insecure they are. And now they're making moves to change that. So the calculus, to your point, may change. We're, we're going to see. So, so let, let's switch gears there. I'm glad you went there. That, that's exactly where I, I think we should go next. We, we've seen these different, I think you call them hacker collectives. Mm -hmm. I was going to call them adversarial mm -hmm. groups. We all know what we're talking about. Conti, Anonymous, sure. you name sure. it. You go down the list. Sure. They're almost picking sides. We saw what happened to Conti right. last week. They had some mm -hmm. issues because some people didn't right. want to join that team. Um, anonymous right. has, has pretty much decided to launch counterattacks against Russia. Did that surprise you? Mm -hmm. I mean, did you ever think about it? Maybe that's the first question. Did you ever yeah. think about in a conflict like this, what would the hacker collectives decide to do? Like how would they pick yeah, sides so or, or would they, or would they sit it out or what would they do? So this, this doesn't, this doesn't surprise me at all. Uh, and again, you can call them whatever you want. And I'm sure there are ransomware gangs out there that, 
you know, that have turned around. We personally, uh, you know, here as we are tracking these kinds of things, we've actually seen a decrease in ransomware attacks, right. you know, in the last couple of months, meaning, meaning, or last couple of weeks, excuse me, meaning as our, the frequency of, you know, this war is, has caught on, we're, we're getting less calls or less. Con, it's you know, almost less the opposite alerts. of what CISA is warning so. us against right now. Right. Well, well, so yes and no. And, and I will say this, because think, think about what a ransomware attack is to an organization. You break in in some way, shape or form, typically phishing. You establish a presence. You establish that command and control traffic. And then you do recon. Oh, that's where the sensitive data is. These are the servers I want to hit. And then you go ahead, you copy out what you want. And then essentially you lock everything out and you're asking for money. If you are looking at an attack basically as a retaliatory situation for a war from an intelligence agency like the Russian FSB, what you're looking at is not the taking the time to essentially you know, look through and query all of your data. They want to knock you right. out. They want to disrupt. They want to wipe the data. They want to knock out your infrastructure. They want to brick your firewall. You know, whatever they can do as fast as they can and move on. You know, and because we have such vast infrastructure here and a massive population in the United States, we are a huge, huge target. That's literally yeah. the article I'm hoping will get published. And I, I hope my editor is fast tracking that. And if he's listening to this, it better have been. <laughs> you know, but um. But that's essentially what we are bracing for. And I think the, United, the U.S. population is wholly unaware of that. It doesn't surprise me with Anonymous, because if you look at the history of what Anonymous is, whatever they consider social justice in that mm -hmm. moment is what they go right. after. They've gone after, you know, child pornography rings in the dark web. They've knocked out uh, national infrastructure over free speech rights. I think it was Zimbabwe or Zaire, one of those. Uh, Ferguson, Missouri, if you remember that just horrible, unfortunate event, they went after the Ferguson police and protest. Uh, for uh, Michael Brown, I believe his name was. So, so, so they have a, 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 a complete history of saying we we want to be on this side, which is why there's kind of a love hate relationship with them. While while they commit crime, they're oftentimes doing it in the name of what they consider to be human rights or social justice in that moment. And so this doesn't surprise me at all. Uh, you know, for example, I'll give you a perfect example of this. We were working with one of the ransomware. I shouldn't say working. We were negotiating. <laughs> with one of the ransomware gangs, we had literally, like, I want to say like a week ago, just agreed on an actual mm -hmm. price for this client to pay. Um, and they basically ghosted us for about three days. Mm -hmm. Didn't hear from them, wouldn't respond. And so are they sitting in Russia? Are they turning their sights against Russia? Like what's going on here? You know, and they were very quick to take our lowball price. Mm -hmm. You know, so 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 we have to understand that I think it's there are going to be both sides. There are going to be people that are obviously very much for Russia, whether it's Russia or, you know, whoever is allied with them. But I think we are seeing right now a focus of these gangs, of these collectives looking at one thing. And that is how we get into Russia. Very similar to when COVID-19 started, we basically saw every criminal element using that as a fishing lure in some way, shape or form. Oh, I, I see you know, what you're yeah, with you there. On the, right. on the, yeah. It's a world event. So a lot to learn here. A lot to learn. Yeah. So in, in some ways, Russia taking themselves off the internet stops their mm -hmm. social media problem. It stops mm -hmm. their hacker collective problem from outside of Russia, but it creates mm -hmm. a whole lot of other problems. I mean, if you want to sanction, yes. if you want to sanction a company, a country, I can't think of anything more serious in 2022 than taking them off the internet. Right. Like right. that just seems right. crazy. That, that well, seems like the ultimate sanction. I don't know, Rachel. Yeah. Right. Well, 
go. I'm sorry. No, no, I, I agree. I mean, it's it's the backbone of everything, right? I mean, without that, we can't exist. And you know, well, we're gonna we're about to see. I think. Yeah. yeah. Nick. Right. Well, he, here's the, but here's the caveat to the whole thing. In 2021, they actually did a dry run mm-hmm. of this. They said we're gonna cut ourselves off the internet for. I don't know, eight hours, 24 hours, whatever, whatever that time frame was to see if our, we could sustain our intranet at that point, you know, within the country. But here's the thing, the wild card in cutting themselves off to the internet is China. So a perfect example is Visa and MasterCard have both come out and said, you know, we are now no longer going to do business in Russia whatsoever. Your Visa, your MasterCard is useless to you at the moment. And so what did Russia do? They went to UnionPay, which is Chinese based. China itself is playing both sides right. of the fence. While in the past, prior to the invasion, uh, basically President Xi said that Russia and China have a friendship that is endless or boundless or something along those lines, they're now sitting the fence. They're not saying we support Russia. They're not saying we support Ukraine. They're saying we respect both entities and the sovereignty they're in. And so if Russia is cutting themselves off, the lifeline could be similar to the lifeline that North Korea has and that the massive economy that China has could float them. And Russia, if you're looking at this historically for the last 10, 20 years, has been shifting assets for the company into non-traditional markets, essentially to harden themselves against the Mm -hmm. West. China being one of those places where they have very deep ties. And so while they're cutting themselves, let's say, off from the Internet, there may be an exception to their firewalls for Chinese IP addresses. Right. And so that's what we're going to see. We're going to see how this shakes out, because if they do this and they are literally alone, then then that is to, you know, Rachel's point. I mean, that is how do you how do you survive? Because now you are an island unto yourself in the world economically, and it's just it's not feasible. And and if we cut off Russian oil around the globe, then I mean that's that's a total nail in the coffin as well. Well, let's say we don't cut off Russian oil. I think Europe is still getting about forty percent of their. Hold on, it's I think it's natural gas. Is it natural gas or oil from Russia? Natural gas and and petroleum. Well, one, I think oil's like twenty five percent, and and natural gas is forty percent. It's one of those mixes. I don't. I don't. There's so many pieces of data going through my head right now. It's a lot. How the do point you, is it's a lot. How do you even Germany. receive payment for that if you don't have internet? Like, are you somehow going through China? Yeah. I mean, that becomes bizarre to me. The the challenges. Yeah. Well. Right. I mean, and, and this is this is this is the case. I mean, what, what do you do with this? Do you seize the oil and turn it around and sell it yourself? I, I mean, I, I there are so many unanswered questions here. And, and I'm sure that there are statisticians that are doing the math on all of these different variables, yeah. you know, to the economy that that we have right now. But when you are looking at it, I mean, I, I, I can't remember who I interviewed, but they said basically, you know, Russia is a gas station masquerading as a country. <laughs> yeah, that was. And I funny. think that's an that's an incredible. Right, that's yeah. but that's an incredibly true thing. I think that I mean, was that a John is, McCain quote from right. from back. Oh, it could I, be. I think that's pulled be, off yeah. a John McCain quote. Yeah, yeah, it could be, but it's accurate. I mean, and you know, to that point, how many how many Russian parts do I have in my car? The computer that I'm sitting on talking to you. How many rush? How many parts were made in Russia? They're not really doing anything except having natural resources that they can sell to the world. And if the world says, we don't want to buy your resources, that's obviously a huge problem. And obviously, there are other places to get it. The Middle East, we now have a massive, uh, you know, petroleum uh, system here since the shale boom of the 2010s. So, So it's not like... 
it's not like the world necessarily 100% is relying on Russia, but that shifting economy to, let's say, move from just getting a direct pipeline from hundreds of miles across your border to having it shipped from the United States or from the Middle East obviously becomes a separate challenge. But it's something that I think a lot in the world are willing to say, you know what, if it takes a few months of me paying five bucks a gallon or seven bucks a gallon at the, at the gas pump, which is dirt cheap globally, right. you know, because we import so much oil, a lot of people are willing to do that. You know, so it, and obviously there are two sides to this. I like to say that cybersecurity is agnostic to politics, but we're not immune from it. Yeah, no, that's a you good know? point. And that is something that I think is, yeah, it's something that we just, we in, in the cybersecurity community have to consider and understand. So going back, just tying this one off then, and we, I mean, we can transition, going back to disinformation, it does seem like Anonymous at least has said, hey, we believe the Ukrainian story more than the Russian media story. Fair piece? Yes, yes. Yeah, I, I think that's 100% fair. And anybody objectively looking at the situation where the Ukrainians weren't massing troops on the border of Russia, you know, they were just right. going about their normal mm -hmm. lives, you know, and trying to keep their democracy established. And here we are, you know. And so, yeah, I think I think it's I think it's fair to say the vast majority of the world looks at this as a Russian aggression, mm -hmm. as opposed to a equal footing. I struck first before my opponent struck because Ukraine had no they had no assets that looked like that at all. To you, Rachel. <laughs> well, I mean, it's it's just so overwhelming, all of it, you know, and to think that it could last, I mean, you know, 10, 20 years and, you know, what, what, what's, you know, what's left, I guess, after that as well. And, um, you know, and, and then there's the other piece, too, of like leakage, right? What leaks out from there is should we be concerned with that, right? You have the shields up, right, from CISA. Um, you know, and, mm -hmm. and everyone's right. getting this guidance, you know, you need to start looking at your infrastructure, harden your defenses, uh, just oh, in yeah. case, you know, but are, we're not really seeing that yet. But is that potentially to come? Uh, so short answer is I'm I'm pretty much banking on it, yeah. not because I'm doom and gloom or Debbie Downer. I swear I'm fun at parties, but like <laughs> it is because Russia recognizes that if they start going after U.S. infrastructure, it's because they're right. desperate. If they start attacking this and we start identifying Russian intelligence attack, attacks against U.S. government infrastructure, state, local, municipal, business, all that kind of stuff, they know that they're going to have a very serious problem on their hands because we will hit back as will everybody else. And we've been playing it very coy. We've been turning a blind eye to the anonymouses right. of the world as they do this. And I think that's an important thing. But it's also important to recognize that there have been reports of Russian-based intelligence cyber attacks outside of the, essentially the conflict zone outside of Ukraine. Perfect example, I interviewed, um, he's a Ukrainian, the president of the American-Ukrainian Congress Committee of America, or whatever they're called, Illinois Division. He's out of Chicago. He's the president okay. of it. And he basically said that he himself was hacked. Wow. That his, his system was infected about 24 hours or so before we actually um, we actually had our interview. I saw him on, I think it was like CNN or MSNBC. Or I watch like every news station, you know, literally just as, as I'm going out through my day here, just seeing who's on and what's interesting. And, and so we are seeing attacks against Ukrainian-based organizations globally because the Russians know that, well, these are the people that have relatives right. back in the home country. They're going to provide material right. support. They're going to provide morale. They're going to provide all of these things. And so they have been going after Ukrainian organizations. Wow. And that's literally what he spoke to in my interview last week. So so we're seeing that already, but we're not seeing it directed at, at US infrastructure or assets just yet in terms of government. Nick, just so I understand what you're saying, you almost guarantee that we will see attacks on US infrastructure or or you're saying we you don't think we will? 
I, I, so there are no guarantees in cyber warfare, but I, what I'm, what I'm saying is I'm, I would put money on it. If I were a betting man and this were Las Vegas and I had my 20 bucks or whatever, I would put money on, on seeing this. And I, the reason why I say that is because as I, as I mentioned, this is, this would be a move of desperation for the Russians because they're not going to launch kinetic warfare against the United States. They would be absolutely crazy to do that. And they know that short of a total nuclear holocaust around the globe. Right. And so their real recourse against hitting, you know, the the United States, Canada, Germany, you know, UK, whatever that is, is going to be cyber attacks, which is why if we are looking at them cutting off their internet, the question is, okay, how how would that happen? How would they launch? Do they have assets in other countries that they will activate like they did with that guy in Canada to hit Yahoo about a decade ago or so? Um, will they have those kinds of things? You know, what, what's going on with that? But as we are looking at this, if Russia begins to grow more desperate, then we are going to see cyber attacks launched from Russian assets against the United States and, and her allies. I, I, I would put money Do on Do you that. think the shutting down of the internet, right, taking the country offline effectively is the the protection mechanism they're planning to use so that they can launch attacks without having the uh, that, that type of recourse well and, it, and it's very it's very possible so for example shutting down the internet means obviously you're you're cutting routing to essentially right. the rest of the globe yeah but BGP there's no tables, reason why you or something right Right, right. You know, you know. So, and I mean, it's one of the things that we recommend to clients. Oh, you've got a next generation firewall. Run geo blocking. Yeah. Block every country that you don't have business in or should be looking at your infrastructure. Uh, you know. So, so those are things that that we know exist. But there's no reason why they couldn't say, okay, we're going to basically gather our resources and launch a major attack. Open up something, hit it, and then lock right. it back down. You know. Or they've got assets that are sitting outside of the country. Uh, leveraging this, we all know that that botnets exist around the globe. They have been working on various variants of the Mirai virus. You know, not to get technical for your audience here, but you know, they we know that the Russian intelligence uses the Mirai virus or variants thereof rather rather frequently, as well as other techniques and tactics. And so they don't necessarily need Russian infrastructure uh, to hit right. us, although it definitely helps. Well, you could so, just reload. You know, we'll we'll see what happens. You could just reload the Internet Research Agency to Africa. Great bandwidth, no laws. Yeah. And operate from there, and you don't yeah. need a access into Russia itself, but you can still right. you can that, still perform asymmetric warfare. Yeah. yeah, but you don't. Right. Yeah, right. So you can you can protect the country while hitting. You know, so there's a lot of ways that this could happen, but I would expect it, and I, I and I am expecting it, and we are preparing to expect it. And unfortunately, the American public has not been prepped for this. They have not been prepped for this at all, and that's a terrifying thing. Yeah. I agree with you. I think that's a terrifying thing because we have a lot to lose and not a lot to gain there. Yes. Way more to lose infrastructure wise than Russia does. We are much more vast than they are in terms of population, in terms of Internet. Reliance. We are all tied to this. I mean, yeah. yeah. Well, look at look at the younger generations. You know, you take away Wi-Fi from kids and it's like a bomb going off in their world. Imagine if nothing works. You can't call 911. You can't go to a gas station and use a credit card. You know, like these things we don't think about. Water and wastewater go down. Traffic lights go down. I mean, we are so interconnected here that that the prospect of, of just having them use the, the cyber nuclear option on us is a yeah. very difficult thing. And our government's unprepared. I just literally just talked about that. So so this is a very deeply concerning thing that, that we all have to be prepared for. I've been in a number of discussions where we've talked theoreticals and what would we do if we were attacked by a nation state and how would we respond? And universally, we have the most to lose, the least to gain, 
right? But you know, everybody goes back mm -hmm. to, well, we have we have the best cyber offensive capabilities out there. Okay, but we still have the most to lose and the least to gain. I've never right. heard anybody suggest that the targeting would be difficult because an entire nation state may come off the internet. So the target basically is obfuscated from offensive capabilities. And it's an interesting concept. Yeah. I've just, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm sure, well, actually, I don't know. Maybe somebody's discussed it and they've looked at it, but I would be wondering, like, yeah. how do you handle that? Because now, you, yeah, well, what do you do? Go ahead. Right. Right. Well, and this is something that has been has been discussed for the last few years or so, only because we've seen other authoritarian regimes attempt to do that as well, take themselves completely off the Internet. I believe Iran tried that um, a few years back as well. Maybe even China. Now that I'm thinking about China it, China changed some, uh, beef, North some protocols, like some some routing tables. Uh, oh boy, that's probably eight eight nine years ago. I I, I know we watched that. And it, it was a mistake, right? Mm -hmm. But and North Korea is off the mm -hmm. internet, but they're really not, right? No, no, it, they're 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 a bit of a hybrid. It's just incredibly restrictive. And interestingly enough, we have a copy of Red Star OS <laughs> here at Security Fanatics, their version, and it does some really unusual things. You know, as as, as we're putting it behind traffic analyzers, just seeing where it goes every time we play with it. Uh, you know, so so you never know, right? But but the point being is that as you're looking at this. I think the calculation has been traditionally, to your point, is a, a country that's going to cut themselves off of the Internet has more to lose than they do right. to gain, meaning the only reason why you would ever want to do that is out of desperation, mm -hmm. desperation for survival primarily. And so if Russia is looking at essentially their tanking economy, they are looking at a globe that is united against them for the most part, supplying at more advanced weaponry than they have to a force on the ground that is using it effectively. This is something that that they are taking into consideration and saying, well, if the United States, if the Americans, if the Australians, if everybody around the world decides to collectively start hitting us with cyber attacks, I mean, that's you know, that's like burying the coffin right. at that point. I mean, what else do they have? They've been cut off from every major stream. Uh, they've been cut off from financial institutions. They got, you know, killed for the most part from SWIFT. I mean, these are things that are, are, are devastating their economy. And so, so for them, it has to be the nuclear option in that case. But it, it, and it's it, gonna get it worse may give, them. it may give them an opportunity to say the, you know, the United States cut us off. It wasn't us right. and, and, and really control that narrative. I just, Sure. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I don't see them lasting terribly long in the way right, the world right. works well, today. It, You're not just going to build, what were they, Ladas back in the day or Volgas, the Russian cars. I mean, you're just not going to build a modern day car without access to the no. materials that the that the geo-connected world right. needs. And, and nobody wants right. that anymore. Right. Well, and even even their budding even their budding robotics programs rely very heavily on Western research. So, I mean, it's you know, they're out there. I mean, and, and to that point, I mean, think about it. If I drive my tree and my car into a tree, you know, I can't blame the tree. <laughs> you know, if I, if I catch a kid with his hand in the cookie jar, you know, the kid can't blame. Well, the cookies were there. Therefore, I had to have one. It's this overwhelming. No, you know, we have some self-control. We're humans. You know, and, and here's a situation that that simply is the antithesis of that for for all intents and purposes. Yeah. So so like to your point, I mean, we're going to see what happens. But as it becomes more perilous for Russia, more so than they, I think, ever really imagined would happen. I think they thought they'd walk in like in 2014, flags waving, shots not fired, you know, and you'd have a population. And now you've got a president that 
that says, you know, we're fighting to the last man. In in one of my interviews, I think it was the one on Friday with Solomia, they have over 100,000 Ukrainians that have conscripted, that have intentionally right. stood in lines and signed one-year contracts to defend the country, and they're being armed. Yeah. You know, I literally just saw a video of a grandma making Molotov cocktails. Yeah. Well, that's you know, a, that's a I mean, it, darn good point. I mean, I think March 7th today, the the, uh, the Department of Defense just did a briefing. They now believe that about 100% of the Russian forces that were aligned against yeah. Ukraine on the 23rd of February are now deployed in country, right? So that's, right. let's call that right. 190,000 or so people. And I believe that was about 70% right. of the Russian military forces. They are bringing more forces in, but right. you think about 100,000 conscripts in the Ukraine, you've got the Ukrainian military, forget how large they were, right. but it wasn't a small military. I, I, I saw today right. that Ukraine has said there are over 20,000 volunteers from other nations that have, have signed yeah. up to come in. All of a sudden the numbers are, yeah. are really changing and in a defensive war, uh, you know, the defender always has the, uh, has, has the uh, advantage. Right. Well, and that's that's any insurgency. I mean, and we're not we're not innocent of that here as well. Look at Afghanistan. You know, whatever Iraq, you whatever you thought about. The, I mean, Vietnam. Yeah. yeah all right. of them. Right. Right. I mean, whatever you think about the withdrawal of Afghanistan, the point being is that we were in country. We were there. We set up a fledgling democracy that collapsed in something like a week because they didn't have the will to fight. And and that was something that I think was you know was very telling of that of that situation. It was complete. My actually my fourth TED talk was on that. You know, and, and so it, it's a huge problem that we have. Um, but you look at any the history of any insurgency, it never favors, right. never ever favors the invader. Right. You know, unless you annihilate the entire population and just bring your own people in. You know, and then then essentially you're committing genocide. It, it's it's. It's not going to look good for the Russians, yeah. no matter what. This is a losing proposition right out of the gate. And this is, they're not rolling over and they're not going to. From everything I've seen and every leader I've talked to in that country, and I've talked to a few, they're not, they're not yeah. moving. The Ukrainians are not moving. Yeah, the Ukrainians no, are not right. moving. They get the world yeah. behind them too. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, they do. I mean, we have we have created a, an air base, um, you know, in Western Ukraine, off just off the border of Western Ukraine. We are flying in uh, roughly 17 to 20 cargo planes a day full of anti-tank, anti-aircraft, just ground weapons, all these kinds of things. And they're being funneled right now into essentially, you know, the defense forces, which could turn into the best and most well-equipped insurgency the world has ever seen. I mean, forget the Mujahideen that, that we equipped in the 80s against the Soviet Union. This, that fails in comparison to what the Ukrainians are getting right now. You know, not to mention they're about to get fighter planes. So it's, it's, it's an entirely different landscape without us having to fire shots directly. Wow. Rachel, you're very quiet. It's just a lot to take in, Eric. It's a lot, it's a lot to take in and process, you know. So, it is. It's, yeah, it's, you know, um, and, and, and in a week, it could be a very different conversation. We just don't even know how it's going to go. Yeah, we don't. Well, and that's why I think we, we keep have marking no the date and time where exactly. we're talking about because point, it is yeah. so rapidly evolving. Right. Right. And that's exactly what I'm doing with all my interviews. I'm time stamping everything now because advice today could be horrible advice exactly. tomorrow. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Okay, Nick. So as we're wrapping here. Three things you'd recommend to mom and dad, what they should do to protect themselves at home right now, if they're worried about their own system. Yeah, so, yeah. 
so the, the most basic, the most basic, basic is three or four things. It's it's very similar to what the CISA said, almost verbatim. But make sure everything is up to date. Enable multi-factor authentication on absolutely everything in your life because you're that much harder to give hit. us an example. Uh, I was talking to a woman this weekend. She Office looked at me and said, "What is multi-factor authentication?" Perfect. Okay, so when you're logging into that website, you know your your Gmail account or your Office 365 account or Facebook or bank or Amazon, you have a username, you have a password, and as soon as you enter those, it should prompt you for another code, and you have an authenticator app on your phone, like Authy or Google or any one of those. They're free, or at least they text it your gives phone. Gives you a code, or they text. Although we don't recommend using text because of SMS hijacking. Right. Authenticator apps tend to be more secure, so that's why I'm leading with that. So, so by virtue of that, that essentially, if I steal your username and password, I don't have access to your phone. That's a thing. Also, make sure everything in your date, everything in your life is up to date. We patch primarily to fix vulnerabilities that can be exploited. To that point, the CISA put out a laundry list of essential infrastructure equipment, uh, like uh, FortiGate VPNs, for example, and Pulse Secure VPN, and Microsoft Exchange, and a whole bunch of others that that Russian intelligence loves to hit and exploit. If they're not patched, this is why Microsoft and Fortinet and et cetera, et cetera, patch all of these products. Um, also, make sure your backups are good. Even if you're a personal person, I have a copy. If you've got stuff on your computer at home, make sure it's in the cloud and offline and all that kind of stuff. And make sure it works. Make sure you're actually backing up what you think you can and, and what you're doing. And the last thing I would mention, too, and there's a whole bunch more advice, but if we're being quick, is... In business for your ICS or industrial control systems or at home for your home automation, make sure they work without the Internet. Make sure that Google Nest will actually heat and cool your house the way it should if it can't phone home to Google. And that's a problem we've seen when things like Amazon have gotten hit or Amazon has gotten down due to an error or something like that. And then people can't access their thermostat. So test that stuff in your life. It's such a basic, basic thing. We don't think about it. But those are three or four critical things out of probably a dozen that, that we should be doing. But I would start there. Wow, okay. And, and I have a question for you then. Rachel and I share passwords mm -hmm. on all of our applications and amongst each other. Is that a good or bad behavior? Oh, that's perfectly mm -hmm. fine. I mean, and your password is password, yeah. right? Is that? Uh, I, I yeah. believe we're on monkey this <laughs> yeah. month. Yeah. Monkey, monkey one, two, three, four. Changed, right. yeah. Monkey one, two, three. Yeah. All right. Well, well, mine, mine is March 2022. <laughs> so you're, you're kind of better than me. Guess, guess what last month was. Uh, yeah, I, so I no, actually, we, we no. have a uh, wireless, Never mind. I'm not going to talk about it, but I, I've, I've seen that problem before closely. But, but, but seriously, right, right. don't share passwords no, across right. Don't, right. applications or with other right. people. No, sir. Right. Right, right. And, and part of the reason why is obviously the more people that know a password, the more susceptible, susceptible it is to being hijacked. But the other side of that, too, is that one of the things we need, especially during a cyber attack, is good logging for the identification side so that we know exactly, oh, was it Rachel that logged in or was it Eric that logged in with that shared username and password that got us hit? And now I've got Rachel pointing the finger at Eric and Eric pointing the finger at Rachel, Rachel and that yeah. is I'm always a the huge, huge problem that we see. We know that. Okay. Yeah. So, so there you so go. We'll then blame Eric. Last question. We'll blame Eric. If if you get called by a CEO and he says or she says, Nick, give me one thing I need to ask my my CISO today in the meeting. What question are you telling them to ask? At the corporate level. The cor so if I if so if it's the C if it's the CEO that's asking the CISO. Yep. Then the very first thing I would have a C CEO, because again, assuming a CEO is non-technical and they're usually not wearing the nerd hat, uh, you know, in the corporation is, do we have a cybersecurity framework in place right now? 
that indemnifies us from risk. And how do you answer that, that with an affirmative? So, so as a good CISO, and, and this is the question that I use when I'm, when I, when I'm coaching or counseling CISOs, this is the question I, you know, cause usually what, what happens is they'll say, okay, Nick, let's talk about cybersecurity. And I say, no, uh, uh-uh. we're going to talk about risk. This is on meeting number oh, one. I love you, Nick. And my I very love first you, Nick. Que- yeah. My my very first question, my very first question to any CISO, I don't care if it's a Fortune 100 company or they have three people. My question is, can you tell me in hard and soft dollars how many computers can be out and for how long until it's economically untenable for your organization? Have you ever had you one say yes? That right, no, not, okay. not yet. So if, 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 go ahead. If you, right. So, so if you can't tell me that, how do you know your backups are appropriate. How do you know your infrastructure does what it says it can it should do? Can production be down for six hours and it's so economically unviable for the company, but marketing be down for a week and nobody cares? If you can't tell me these things, then how do you know what you're doing is correct? And a CEO is not going to understand a firewall or remote browser isolation or DNS routing or anything like that. They understand the vision for the company. The next three to five years, this is where we're going. The CIO is going to build that infrastructure that moves the engine of the economy and the CISO is going to defend the whole thing. So that CISO better be able to speak to the risk for the next three to five years and what we are doing to ensure that. And if you can't, you've got a problem in your job. You cannot answer essentially what a CEO and a CFO need to know as they are moving the ball forward. Wow, I wasn't going to go here, but Rachel, your BSO comment or question from the, the other day. B-I-S-O, can you ask B-I-S-O. Nick? Yeah, yeah. Can Nick, you ask what Nick? Is, what is your perspective on the, the BSO role, the business information security officer? So, I mean, I think at the end of the day, what we are all looking at is the indemnification of risk. Uh, when you have security attached to your name, I don't care if you're the physical security officer, uh, you know, that, that is building the physical perimeters around your data centers, whatever that is, at the end of the day, it all comes down to a quantification yes. of risk. Whatever elements of risk are for you. So, for example, if it's a CISO, obviously you're looking at that infrastructure. Can my firewalls do what they say they do? Can my backups do what they say they do? Are they effective? Are they working? All those kinds of things. Business on on the business side of things. You know, maybe it's intellectual property. Maybe it's you know whatever they're indemnifying. Mm-hmm. Is it hardened to the point where where we understand the risk to this and the security around it? And I think that's that's an important message for 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 any anybody that has security right. in their name. That is the message that CISO should be telling their team too. You know, you are essentially the shield for this this organization. You are defending them. We have to do our jobs. Their complacency is the death knell of what we're doing. So I'm hearing from you, BSO is uh, is an okay job to, uh, person to have in the organization. <laughs> I mean, if the so if the organization is big yeah. enough. Right. I mean, and that that goes for anything. I mean, I, I'm looking at a small to mid-sized business that outsources their IT. Well, OK, you need somebody that's going to operate and run and understand the security side of it, even if you're outsourcing all those right. kinds of things. But I have no problem with having multiple roles at roughly the sea level for security if the security of the organization requires it to be that right. fast. You know, and a lot of companies really need to understand essentially what they are protecting in order to to really differentiate yeah. between one role or the other. And if they can't, well, then that's on right. them. But they're really you know, creating so that role a as a crutch. Of- I mean, really what you said was the CISO should know what he or she, yes. you know, risk and what she or he needs to protect and why. You wouldn't need the B- mm-hmm. ratios right. BSO if you had that. 
So why would you, why would you, no, well, think about this. Why would you remove the ability to understand the risk footprint from anybody that is a security officer in a company? I, I think it's, why I think it's why instrumental on like the primary function of the job, understand right. risk and protect so, against it. So, right. So by virtue of that, you have a CISO, a CSO, a BISO, a, you know, take your pick, the security officer for the, the zoo, I, you know, because you own a zoo. For whatever you need like, to protect what, against whatever, risk. Right. What, what, you know, whatever the title is, if, if they are involved in security, they are involved in the right. risk, meaning they have to have an understanding of their risk footprint. Now, for the security person that's physical, maybe it's OK if the building gets blown up or broken into, you know, these are the physical assets that I would be responsible for. Therefore, I understand, you know, on the data security side, it could be that your data classification or quantification differentiates between standard operating procedures versus intellectual property to be protected versus, let's say, ITAR compliant data for the government. Yep. Right. And so now you've got these buckets. But if you have a coordination between the physical security, the administrative security and the technical security, which is essentially what we're talking about here, then we've got proper coordination because holistically, all of those things, all of those technical controls or safeguards go into creating a holistic cybersecurity framework. You just happen to be breaking that out beyond one person owning everything and breaking it down into multiple officers. And maybe you're the size that can do that. That's essentially what I'm getting at. Nick, this was an excellent hour together. I think you yes. even brought us, I think you brought Rachel and I together in almost agreement <laughs> on the end here. That's how impressive your talents are. You are Is a true <laughs> security fanatic. Well, we've been, we, she accused me of cheating on her a couple weeks ago on the podcast, doing one without her. So a little bit. Way to, way to bring us together in Fair harmony enough. though. That's right. That's right. Thank you. So, thank, thank you, you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This is this has been fun. Let's Absolutely. I would you love to it. stay in touch. I mean, you know, who's to say what happens in the next however many weeks and you know, as as things yeah. turn, would love to stay yeah. in touch for sure. Yeah. Well, I've been I've been living and breathing and drinking Ukraine for the last week and a half. It's been a very tough week and a half, right. but it's been a much needed week and a half, not just for Ukraine and my radio show, but for my my clients with interests in yeah. the area as well. So it's you know, it's just it's just a tough situation all around. But I really appreciate the time and allowing me to talk Thank about you. it. Well, it's good else. for people to yeah. hear from what's going on on the ground, right? I mean, because it's it's just so vital, mm. you know. And and that's what we love about you know yeah. kind of good journalism and you know kind of folks like you who are who are able to amplify the message, uh, you know, because that's the only way we're going to know what's going on and and of course how how folks can help as well. So. Okay, until next time. Until next time. All right. Thank you, Nick. Thank you, Eric. And to all our listeners, we'll talk to you next week. Thanks for joining us on the To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast, brought to you by Forcepoint. For more information and show notes from today's episode, please visit www.forcepoint.com slash govpodcast. And don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts.